Hello, hello. Um, if we've not yet met, I'm Owen, and I'm, I'm here to um, nominally to uh, pastor the postgrads um, alongside my wife, Laura, still working out quite what to do. Um, but if you haven't yet said hello, um, we're both quite friendly, and we like talking to people, so do come and say hello. Quick check who's in the room uh, today. Has anyone ever, like halfway through a sermon or um, a talk somewhere, has anyone ever just sort of walked out? We've got one, two, two. I very nearly have. I haven't, but I very nearly have. You know when something's just like too boring or too confusing um, or, or too offensive even to tolerate any more of it and you just walk out? Okay. Hopefully you won't feel the need to do that um, this evening. But if you did, it, actually, it wouldn't be uh, the end of the world because you'd actually be helping us flesh out some of what is going on in our reading today. This is a moment when Jesus is decidedly unpopular. Whole crowds are turning away. And his big question, we've been going through these big questions at 8.15, his big question for us tonight is, what about you? You're not going to leave as well, are you? The plan is to think a little bit about popularity and power dynamics and hopefully have our imaginations reconfigured a little bit along the way. By way of introductions, I thought I would share just a few brief episodes of my personal formation. As I, as the first one is from when I was in primary school. And we had this thing in our primary school whereby if someone had won a trophy um, or some special certificate or badge, they could bring it into assembly and you get to go out the front and everyone got to give you a clap. Um, I, I was captivated by the, the prospect of this. So when I, I was at the summer fete for my primary school and for 20p, I saw there this football trophy. It's this exact one. <laughs> this was, was back in the early 90s and, and so I bought it with my little 20p. I used to have money in a little... Did anyone have one of those money coin holders? Um, they might not be a thing anymore, but they were then. <laughs> a little coin hold around your neck, and I took out my 20. I bought this with my money, and then I, I didn't know any better. I took it into assembly um, the next Monday morning, and this head teacher says, oh, I see someone's got something to show us. Why don't you come out the front, Owen? So I trotted out to the front of assembly with this, this very trophy. It's great, we've just moved house, so you find all this like, random stuff that you keep for some unknown reason. This is the reason. And, the, uh, and my brother is two school years older than me. I've got two brothers. We'll come to the younger one in a minute. The older one's two school years older than me, and he's uh, sat there in year five laughing with his friends because he can see what's coming. And so what, what did you do to win this, Owen? I bought it at the summer fete. <laughs> uh, in hindsight, she must have like, been stifling a laugh and she got everyone to give me a clap for coming along <laughs> to the school fete. And I was happy as Larry with that. I sat back down and didn't know any better. I'm going to put this. I, right, you have to imagine, here's the tenuous link. You have to imagine that this is actually a cup, okay? Because this, the sermon today is going to be a sort of contrast of two cups. And so we're going to have the, like, sort of the cup of fame, adulation, success, achievement, popularity, and power. And then over here is a very different sort of cup. Okay, episode number two, I was a teenager one time doing the, the, the washing up. 
did the washing up more than one time, but this one time, I was getting to the end of the washing up shift, and I noticed as I picked up the glass that the, the kind of yucky washing up water looked just like a glass of lemon squash, you know, the cloudy, cloudy lemon stuff, which gave me an idea. So I put it down on the side, just as my brother, my younger brother, was coming through the kitchen on his way out to play football with his friends. And I said, Dan, I've, um, I made you a drink. Before you, you should drink this before you go out hot day. Oh, thanks, thanks. Takes a big gulp of the, the lemon squash dishwater, complete with little juicy bits, if you looked closely for that. Um, I share this just so you can know what a trustworthy guy I am. Um, this, the cup of squash claimed to be something that it wasn't. What about the imaginary cup of glory, power, success, and popularity? Hopefully, by the end of our little time together, we'll have grown in discernment between this sort of a cup and this sort of a cup. Final little episodes. Growing up in church in the 90s, we sang some big tunes. I wasn't expecting that one from 95 that we just sung. <laughs> I was 10 years old when that one came out. One thing I ask, yes. Anyway, the biggest of the lot was probably History Maker. Does anyone know this song? Uh, it's a big tune, big lyrics. The biggest of the lot are probably, I'm going to be a history maker in this land. I'm going to be a bringer of truth to all mankind. <laughs> I'm going to be a big deal. You know, that is, is what this, it's probably not what the, the songwriters intended, but that's what this young, impressionable boy thought. And the, and the effect of such an anthem on a young boy's theological imagination was to kind of inscribe this growth curve as to how things were going to go with the church, how the church was gradually going to get bigger and stronger and, um, and, and, and take over and everything would be healed. Kingdom come, victory, amen. That was what I expected things to go like. And then you grow up and you mature a bit and you realize it's not like that. Actually, if anything, over the decades of our lifetime, the church has got weaker, fewer and fewer people um, coming along. The, the prominence of Jesus in our culture, wider culture and, and society is is lower, and so what do we do with that? It turns out that our reading is, has got something to say for us into this moment, questioning whether in fact we were ever called to this establishing uh, a new dominant culture in the first place. So Jesus, in the beginning of chapter six in John's gospel, has just miraculously fed the 5,000 and when he, he saw that they intended, the crowd are like thrilled with this, this miracle, as you would be. And they intended to make him king by force, it says. And when he saw that, he snuck off to the other side of the lake. And then the crowd managed to catch up with him a day or two later. And when, when they do, he says to them, look, you're just here because you want another bit of food and another free meal. I tell you what, I think it says like, you know, verily, verily, I say unto you, I tell you what, what, what you want to do is, is not chase after the food and drink um, for your belly, but chase after the sort of food that's going to nourish your soul and last forever. And they're like, yeah, give us this food. So that's when Jesus says, famous line, I am the bread of life. The bread that has come down from heaven, he said, which made some of them start to have an issue. He's like, and this guy's saying he came down from heaven, but... We know his parents, so how does he expect 
any of us to believe this. And Jesus doesn't really help matters in terms of winning this crowd over because he starts to say, the bread that I'm talking about is my flesh. And they're like, what? And then he carries on and he says how each of them are going to need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is where we picked up the reading, uh, verse 53. Going to need to eat my flesh, drink my blood if you want to have any part of this coming eternal life and the eternal love of God. And it's seriously confusing, to say the least. Is this cannibalism? Is this some grisly metaphor uh, that Jesus is employing? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And we'll say a bit more about this later. But if you're here tonight and you're, um, this, you know, when, when Paddy read that passage, and if it confirmed all of your kind of suspicions that this whole like church religion, Jesus thing is just completely crackers, then you're actually in decent company because a majority of the people listening thought exactly the same. This is not effective communication to the masses from Jesus. He's not getting through. Whatever it was he, he meant, he's not getting through. And I bet the disciples, the sort of ones sort of closest to him, most on his side, most committed, they're like, ah, why did he have to go and mention blood? You know, um, the, it, within the Jewish um, understanding, blood was the very life force. This was sacred. So there's all these rules about how you're not going to consume blood. Black pudding was not a thing in their culture. So, so Jesus, to talk about drinking his blood, this is instinctively repulsive to them. And sure enough, verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It turns out that Jesus was not as bothered as we are about charming a crowd, about establishing some new mega-dominant culture. Let's just be clear on one thing. This isn't because he does not care about each and every one of those people who was put off and was turning away at that point. It's because he cares about them enough that he's committed to continuing along the path, the only path that is going to open up the way of God's salvation, his healing, his rescue of the world that we all need, that this world so badly needs. He's not caught up in the love of power like the rest of the world. Instead, he embodies the power of love. He's not into the love of power. He's into the power of love. So instead of running after the crowd, chasing them, trying to say, I didn't mean, let me explain it to you. Have a donut, you know. Instead of that, he turns to his closest disciples, those remaining there, and he asks them, so what about you? This is where the question comes in. What about you? Are you going to turn away as well? I said at the beginning about if, if anyone's, you know, walked out of a lecture or a sermon halfway through, imagine if a good chunk of people, not even a majority, just like, just like five or ten people had like stood up and walked out and walked away. I would be left feeling very insecure, to be honest. And then I'd lean forward with a whole lot of fear in my eyes, being like, and what about you? Are you guys, you guys going to go as well? Not so with Jesus. When he asks this question, don't imagine that he's racked with insecurity or there's any fear in his eyes. No, just picture him like full of, of a perfect care and a concern and love for these guys. And he, and he says to them, so what about you? And this is a growth moment for them. This is why he was quite, quite happy to be misunderstood. 
And the same kind of decision presents itself to us. What about you? Are you about to walk away? Because the crowds continue to turn away, do they not? To take offense at the notion that, that all this stuff about Jesus could be so central to everything. I remember watching um, North Oxford's very own Richard Dawkins taking part in one of those existence of God debates. And, um, and he was you know, going back and forth. And, and when the, the Christian that he was you know, debating with started talking about Jesus, you could see that, that he was visibly annoyed at this. And he was like, what has a solitary human life from 2,000 years ago possibly got to do with the origins of the universe? And then this line he said that sort of um, stuck with me um, in quite a fruitful way. He, he said, isn't it so unworthy of the universe? And I actually think it's a really decent question for us to, to engage with because it really puts the finger on something of the scandal and the glory of, of it all. The God of the universe stepping down into the tiny speck of human history and, and, and our awareness and our, and our consciousness to reveal to us who he is, what he's like, and it's not at all what we expected. So, let's go to the two cups, the cup of glory, power, fame, popularity, and the other one. Jesus does not come to grab at power, but he comes to pour himself out. He does not come to assert himself as king, but he comes to set captives free. He doesn't come to impose by force, but comes to evoke by love. He doesn't come to charm and manipulate the crowds, start a prosperous movement, but he comes walking an unpopular path of sacrifice, walking towards the cross, walking towards the suffering that he referred to in the Gospels, you can read it, as, as his cup. His cup is the opposite of the, the celebrated fans, that sort of one. It's not what we expected. And this is where we need our imaginations recalibrated tonight. For this weakness, this humiliation, this defeat of the cross is actually the victory of God. And so while the crowds of this world will continue to be infatuated with the love of power, Jesus demonstrates for us the power of love, a deeper sort of power, a truer sort of power, a more beautiful sort of way. This is, this is truly glorious. Jesus defeating sin and death and setting us free into fullness of life, eternal life, at the, the greatest expense to himself. I find Jesus more beautiful than anything. This majestic humility of God. I was speaking to a um, postgrad student recently, and her she's a philosophy thing, and her whole project is about humility. And she said, "Jesus is the most beautiful thing. The God of it all, displaying the most majestic humility, to be born as one of us as a tiny baby, suffering to death, giving his very body and blood that we may be healed and delivered." She said this line, if I came across something more beautiful, that would kind of be a problem for me. But she hasn't, because there's nothing else like it. So about a week after the lemon squash 
dishwater incident, my, my brother exacted his revenge on me to great effect, and you have to admire him for it. He bided his time, and then we were all sat around the, the, the table, and he says, do you want a drink? Yeah, I say, just walking straight into his trap. Squash or water, innocently enough? Squash, yeah. So off he goes. He chooses orange, lemon, and pineapple, a strong cover for his evil scheme. I'm sure you'll agree. If you're familiar with this, this flavor, it has a sort of fluorescence of its own and a putrid smell. Anyway, he set, comes back in, two glasses, sets one for me, one for him. If I was more switched on, I would have done a quick swap, but I wasn't. I took a big gulp of my one. To my horror, it was not diluted with water. It had been diluted with the juice out of the pickled onion jar. It was horrendous. And <laughs> I can still taste it now. And I ran out of that room. I only had time to punch him the once on my way through to the tap because I needed some fresh water. My word. The love of power, position, fame, popularity is a bit like dirty dishwater or pickled onion squash. We think it's what we want, but I don't think it really is. We instinctively reach for it. The crowd chase after it, but it leaves us thirsty. Jesus describes himself in this chapter as the bread of life. Elsewhere is the living water. What he's talking about is himself. What he has to offer us is nothing less than himself. It's not so, he's not got the secret to some other source of nourishment that he can fix up for us. No, that's why he's talking about his flesh and his blood. He's aware of the cup of suffering that is before him, where the crowd wants some victorious superhero to celebrate and make king by force. He knows that the only way is this unpopular path of sacrificial love. And what he invites the remaining disciples to do is to say yes to him. Simon Peter, he didn't always get it right, but he really does in this passage. It says, Lord, he, this is his response. It, Jesus asked him the question, so are you, what about you guys? Are you going gonna to go to? He says, Lord, to whom else would we go? You've got the words of eternal life. He's probably confused. He certainly doesn't have all of the answers. But deep down, he knows. Some, somewhere deep inside, he knows that there's nothing like Jesus. Deep down, he trusts him. What about you tonight? Do you see the beauty of Jesus? There's that line in a hymn about more beauty than this, this world affords. Do you, do you know what they're talking about? Do you go chasing after power? After a hero? Or have you been moved by the power of love? Jesus isn't popular. Just look around in your city, in your school, in your university, in your whatever. Jesus isn't popular. He doesn't go in for the love of power. But he's all about the power of love. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. He offers us himself. And he invites us into the most beautiful 
sort of life. Not the most popular, not the most acclaimed, not the most prosperous, nor the most comfortable, but it is the most beautiful life of love. Should we stand together? Just take a moment to pray, because as we come around this table now, Jesus invites each of us to make our response to that question, to make our response to him. And what do you want to say yes to tonight? And this is the Lord's table. And if, if it would be your honest yes to receive uh, his grace, to receive him, the gift of him, then you're welcome to, to come and receive. You don't have to have all of the answers worked out. And you don't have to have had a great week or anything like that. Saying yes to his sheer gift of grace and yes to receiving that sheer gift of the deepest sustenance for our souls. Also yes to a new imagination where we've been captivated by less beautiful things. Coming forward, taking your place. There's a place here for you, but coming forward and taking your place at this table is, is saying, yeah, I'm in. The words that we're going to use are not the ones we used last week, but they are straight out of the, uh, the Church of England book. Um, there's nothing coming up on the screens. There's a very simple response that I invite you to join in with, and, and that is when I say amen, you simply say, Lord, we believe. And I say a few words, and then I'm going to say amen, Lord, we believe. Amen, Lord. That's your trigger. That's your clue to join in with the, the next line. And then it changes for the last two, just to keep you on your toes. When I say amen, it says, come Holy Spirit. I'll give you a heads up when we're, when we're shifting line. So let's just be still, and then we'll pray. Lord God, you are the most holy one, enthroned in splendor and light. Yet in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, you reveal the power of your love, made perfect in our human weakness. Amen. Lord, we believe. Embracing our humanity, Jesus showed us the way of salvation, loving us to the end. He gave himself to death for us, dying for his own. He set us free from the bonds of sin that we might rise and reign with him in glory. Amen. Lord, we believe. On the night that he gave himself up for us all, he took the bread, 
and he gave you thanks. And he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Lord, we believe. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he gave you thanks. And he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Lord, we believe. Therefore, we proclaim the death that he suffered on the cross. We celebrate his resurrection, his bursting from the tomb. We rejoice that he reigns at your right hand on high, and we long for his coming in glory. Amen. Lord, we believe. And this is where we change now for the last two to Amen, come Holy Spirit. As we recall the one perfect sacrifice of our redemption, Father, by your Holy Spirit, let these gifts of your creation be to us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Form us into the likeness of Christ and make us a perfect offering in your sight. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. And look with favor on your people. And in your mercy, hear the cry of our hearts. Bless the earth, heal the sick, and let the oppressed go free. And fill your church with power from on high. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. And every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a moment, I'll say a final few words. Um, we don't have stewards telling you when to go. Um, please be seated. And then in your own time, um, we're going to have three stations up at the front here. The gluten-free option is on my left, your right. Um, you're welcome. Say yes to the, the grace that is here. So draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you, and his blood, which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you. And feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. <laughs>